After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Back with Mind Rolling, it is I, Raghu, and I have a wonderful new guest. God, I got to get some other, get rid of some of these cliche, wonderful, gracious, absolutely fascinating. Uh, but I will say something. This is Dr. Miles Neal. Miles, welcome. Thank you, Raghu. What a, what a delight. You know, I'll, I'll throw a cliche back at you. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Oh, everybody, though, Miles has a, a great book called Gradual Awakening, The Tibetan Buddhist Path of Becoming Fully Human. Um, or as I did a podcast recently featuring Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who I love and has been a great teacher since I met him all those years ago. And um, he said, yes, yeah, spirituality is... It's not about becoming holy. It's about becoming sane. So uh, I, I feel like uh, I'm sure that you're familiar with him and, and, uh, and I'm sure you also love him. And I think that that thread has been passed into this book, which, you know, I, I, it's not easy to do is, is really the truth. Funnily enough, I don't know all that much about Trungpa, although uh, other than for his great books and his uh, crazy wisdom. Um, but I did stumble upon some very early writings of his that never made it into the published content in, in a book. And, and one of his very short articles was on um, Becoming Fully Human was the title of it, mm. where he was talking about the purpose of practices really to um, <clears throat> become more fully a human being, not to transcend. In, in other words, we have all these associations about transcendence. I think they're um, potentially dangerous in, or were potentially dangerous in his eyes. So he had a very knack for better or worse of, of keeping it real. Yeah. 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 Big time. Well, we have to say a little something I mean, if you don't know Miles, and many of you don't, and some of you do, um, so next generation uh, Buddhist teacher and and a forerunner, as it says in the book jacket, emerging field contemplative psychology, uh, psychotherapy rather, and uh, so as I'm reading this, and and I have a friend and. Uh, 
and Mark Epstein in New York. And, you know, wow, you guys, it's fantastic. I mean, he's a, another generation ahead of you. He's more close to my generation. But for this to happen uh, so beautifully, I feel like, wow, this is really uh, a wonderful gift that uh, it's being passed through generations, which is a lot of our work in terms of our lineage with Ram Das and Neem Karoli Baba is, is to, uh, you know, generate uh, the kind of interest that has been generated through, through, the Buddhist, through Buddhist thought for what it is that, that we represent which is a crazy combination of bhakti yoga and Buddhism, okay? Crazy. Really, it's crazy. So <laughs> there's so much in this book. I mean, I started to go through it. You know, usually I go through it, I make some page markers. Well, and let me, let me just say one thing, Raghu. Thank yeah. you to your generation uh, and to Ram Dass and to all the early pioneers who were bringing a lot of the spirituality out of Asia and out of its traditional context and making it relevant and doing the hard graft, as they say in the UK, the hard work of um, of trying to stumble through how this stuff all fits together, being a Westerner and being a family man or family woman, raising a family, having a job, uh, working with money, working with sex, um, and coming up against the challenges, the delights, the ecstasy, and the everyday life, um, and working with, I, I assume, you know, there was a like a, a beautiful little ground zero up in Colorado with Chogyam Trungpa at the time that Naropa was gaining yeah. its reputation. And, you know, the who's who of the first line or first tier generation of Buddhist masters, Ram Das and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Mark Epstein and Dan Goldman and all these cats paved a way for a young kid like me and did the extraordinary first frontier uh, work of moving the moving the uh, you know moving the orientation forward and bringing it to the West and Bob Thurman, my teacher and and a number of that first tier first generation of pioneer and I think you know we, my generation can lose touch with just how difficult and how, um, you know, how messy and complicated that, that, uh, that trailblazing may have been for a lot of people. So I think, let me take my hats off to that generation, including yourself for uh, opening the door for so many of us. And I want to, on behalf of my generation, just thank all that first year, you know, the first lineage, you can say of the American spiritual West. Uh, for all you've done to make the road a little less uh, difficult to traverse. You know, someone like me coming up, I, I'm, I'm now the first generation that can walk right into a contemplative therapy. I can, I can walk into a, 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 a program at Naropa or another one at Nalanda or this place or that place where from scratch I can become a Buddhist psychotherapist or a contemplative psychotherapist where at one point it was people who had to, you know, stitch these disciplines together, a generation later, they are now readily available as a seamless whole. Mm. So I think in one yeah. generation, that's a very, very powerful statement and a very, very uh, life worth we uh, well lived for, for a, a whole generation mm. because uh, they have done, you know, this is the, the power of lineage is that we can transmit knowledge through the generations making making headway more expeditious. And so I think that is a, a wonderful homage I'd like to pay to, to your generation. <clears throat> On behalf of my generation, I thank you.
Dr. Neil. <laughs> no, and, and in fact, you talk about it, mentorship in this book as well, and how important that is. Uh, well, okay, give us a little bit of, okay, you were just out there, a kid, a teenager, and doing, God, I don't know, what, a little bit about uh, what happened to you to even think yeah. that you... Life life wasn't that easy as a kid growing up in Asia. I, I was born and raised in I was born in Singapore and raised in Asia. I had a expatriate family experience living as a you know a kid of affluent means in a um, in a in an Asian society and going to an American international school and having all the bells and whipple, whistles and sort of opportunities that were afforded to me and yet still very much felt uh, alienated worthless, um, depressed, and and had uh, recoiled at my, on myself in a very early age. Let's say by 16, I was already, you know, uh, having suicidal thoughts, a tremendous anxiety and self-harm behavior. <clears throat> but I also had the, the fine fortune of meeting mentors very early on who opened my eyes, and they were students of the first generation of pioneers. So at 16, a sophomore in high school, I was exposed to Stan Groff's holotropic breath work in high school, which is, excuse my language, but fucking unheard of. And, uh, and also the entire Bill Moyer series of the, uh, the, the discourse with Joseph Campbell, as well as handed a copy of Siddhartha at 16 that opened my eyes to uh, the, the power of meditation and the, the path of the awakened ones. And so I think very early on in my torment, also some very rich seeds were planted and that then exposed me to the next step in the bead of the mala. If you just look at my, my own hero's journey as a series of decisions, by the time I hit 20 in college, I was already um, in India and I was in Bodhgaya and mm -hmm. Bodhgaya is the site where the Buddha gained enlightenment and it is home to a rich tapestry of monasteries that each representing the uh, culture of their origin so you have buddhist monasteries ranging from thai to burmese to bhutanese to nepali to tibetan to chinese to taiwanese all in their own original architecture and i was staying at the burmese monastery which at the time was the place where ram das sharon salzburg christopher titmus uh, jack cornfield they had all all made their way at in or around the same age that I was a generation earlier. And I had found my way there. At that time, I didn't know all those figures. And if you were to ask me, uh, quite honestly, I don't know what I was doing there other than following mm. a hunch. I was mm. following a hunch. Really? I broke, I broke with the meme or the accepted norm of my culture to pursue something on a limb that was calling me from within without much clarity um, and it has made all the difference you know uh, just it just reminds me the hunch i like that so i'm around the same age and i meet ramdas who said a bunch of things that went okay uh this makes a lot of sense and oh the, really there's somebody you met that is what everybody talks about okay and my hunch was, Ramdas, tell me where to fucking go now. I got to get there. I need this. I'm a disturbed human being. Don't you get it? I need help. And sure enough, he went to India and I followed him. 
that year. Wonderful. So you must yeah. have been out there with Krishna Das and Sharon and Dan Goldman also. Yep. All part of our little group back then. Yeah. Yeah. So and it but, has it has made all the difference. That's a wild understatement, <laughs> considering how screwed up I was. <laughs> Uh, but you know, and then it's, it's, it just is, uh, for everybody listening who, you know, we all have gone through some very tough stuff, especially at a younger age and where we can't find our way. And I was a very depressed young man back then. And, and similar to you and some of the stuff you talk about in the book, really, I'm going to conform to this bullshit which is what this is what it's about you know all of that kind of thing which is uh quite easy to get into these days especially uh with what's going on i mean it it has exacerbated the intensity of what is going on that's for sure and let's let's put some language around it ragu what exactly are you referring to what is the bullshit? Are you talking about the lie, the corporate uh, economic lie of the, yes uh, and the yes. American dream can be realized on the treadmill up the corporate ladder type? Yeah, and that we need to be a, we need to accumulate, we need to uh, stand within very defined boundaries in our life with how how we operate, how we need to keep in the, in, the, in the separateness that we have unfortunately gravitated towards uh, after the first six months of our life when we were more or less home from where we were just before then. And yeah, all of that, society, politically, everything, uh, the, the work, sex, the whole thing. That, by the way, the the book that I have to keep telling people about this work, sex, money book from Trungpa Rinpoche, is is really great. Addressing how to how to live, it's mm. really uh, so. Yeah, addressing all of those things, and uh, I, I just I could not. I was not down with what was being thrown at me. Mm. Period, and so. And My, not as a concept, I imagine, if, we, if we're if we resonating on experience, I think, uh, I mean, I could say for myself, but I'm sure you'll follow suit, is not as an abstract concept, as a lived experience, we, it wasn't panning out for our families of origin, and that, and that was having a repercussion on our lives as young people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it started with school. That, uh, I got pretty wrecked by uh, school, and I grew up in Montreal. We should reverse this. You should. Uh, you should ask me a bunch of shit, and then we'll talk about. <laughs> uh, I just so I and in that whole system, I became really warped. Okay, and and then the warpness of society in it wasn't any different than the U.S. I mean, you know, all the television stuff was the same. It was the culture was basically the same. We were less removed from this crazy ass nationalistic shit that goes on in the US. Canada doesn't really have that. Uh but yeah, all of it absolutely contributed to uh finally Dylan Dylan helped out, man. And the Dylan was like, you know, it's all right, mom, I'm only dying. And uh somebody else expressing that uh big time angst back then. Mm. Uh really then the hunch. Mm. You know, I, the hunch was, uh, for me, it was Mayor Baba right off the bat. Mm. You know, a, a picture of him smiling going, you can be happy, you know. And I thought, I want to be happy. So 
Therein, I met Ramdas, and just like you, the hunch, I was over there in my early 20s and uh, grabbing for that brass ring. Karmically, I was in the right spot. How long did you stay? A year and a half. A year and a half. Yeah, went in 1970, came back in 72, and uh, three-quarters of that time was just, okay, where are you, and how can I get right next to that thing, whatever that thing is, the body, it, you know, is in a blanket, but I had never, you know, so it was really, uh, yeah, that was beyond anything that I even had imagined. But I, I saw it in Ram Dass's eyes. All right, enough of me, because they've been hearing about me, 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 for forever, <laughs> okay, on these podcasts the last three years or whatever it is. Uh, so you're over there in India and uh, in Bodh Gaya, which is, yeah, this historic time when all these people, and you, you were there, you know, a generation after. Uh, and uh, I am supposing and knowing, of course, through the, the book that, that's the catharsis happened at that moment. It is. And I, you know, I don't necessarily want to overly romanticize it. It was a very challenging time. I mean, I, I, I made profound discoveries that transformed the rest of my life, but I never got uh, enlightened. I never, it wasn't easy. I, um, I had major regressions. I had uh, freak outs, you know, I was young. I was 20. I was trying to meditate in a 10-day Vipassana course, and all I could think about was missing my girlfriend and missing sex. I mean, these are, you know, <laughs> the, you know this is, I don't also want to paint broad brushstrokes on either way. Um, I think I found a teacher, and I found what we now call, you know, maybe another cliche, unconditional love in this in the presence of the master. I think that that was a turning point for me because up until then that had not ever been actually felt. It had been read, it had been um, inferred, but it had never been truly felt. And, um, and also this, this master never became a popular master and also never attracted a large following. And then, and there as a result, never had a fallout of any kind. So I know looking back, <laughs> I know looking back that that master was a true, what would they, what we'd call a true hidden gem. And so yeah. I'm very fortunate to have met a, a true human being that wasn't into celebrity status. Uh, and so that legacy remains unblemished. And so my confusion about it has been dispelled that it is possible human beings can be transformed. And I had a good taste of it that motivated me to discover more. But I also, for those that are just tuning in and don't know me, <clears throat> I don't like to paint broad brush strokes that leave the impression that, uh, you know, you just have to go to Asia and meet a teacher and everything is bliss because I think uh, that would undermine and undervalue just all the complexities of the human experience and what it takes to really begin to integrate all, you know, what we're discovering with all our, you know, untold bits and, and, and naughty bits and hidden secret bits. And like it, it's taken and it is still an unfolding process by any means. I have no proclamation over enlightenment. I don't feel like I've at, I'm at the end of the path. I think the book that I'm trying to share is tr an honest stab at what a, a true spiritual life in the world should look like, and it should not look pretty or linear or easy or sexy. It is it is for those people that are questioning themselves if they're doing it right. You're doing it right if it's messy and if it takes longer and if it uh, it doesn't sell in three easy steps in the marketplace. Yeah, right. 
by the way, uh, when you talk about falling down and picking yourself up and falling down after that initial, you're the only one that's ever done that. When we went, we had this experience, we became enlightened, and that was it for the rest of our lives. And you still got you know? those beautiful wings behind you, Raghu. I yeah, can see exactly. them. Exactly. Oh, God, fall down. I won't even tell you. Well, Krishnadas has enumerated in his, uh, in his talks and books about that fall down. Ouch. You know, there's a great thing in this uh, that really turned me on because it was so much our experience. And, and that's at some point, I think you're, you're doing some meditation and, and so on and, um, around the Bodhi tree, maybe even. Uh, sitting with uh, a mentor of yours, and and it was said, you said it was the first time I came to know what the word love meant. The person, the place, and the moment all felt like finding home. I can't tell you how much we use that analogy, mm. and have over these many years, and do so in in our retreats with people, mm. emphasizing that place, which absolutely goes beyond any Buddhism or Hinduism or Jainism or anyism yeah. whatsoever for and it, sure yeah and it and we we i i mean not to boast about these retreats in maui where we have uh our thing ramdas krishnas myself and others from our lineage and then jack and sharon and 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 bob and yeah, whoever. you guys are having a real party out there in maui <laughs> exactly <laughs> talk about home and it and it just cuts through any of the uh, the ideas people have, how could you possibly want this completely two diabolically opposite uh, philosophies and so on? So I love, love is home. Yeah. And I, I think it's in stark contrast just how disenfranchised and lost we can feel. I mean, that's the thing is it isn't in Buddhism and it isn't in the teacher and it isn't in the place, although at first it can seem like it's all of those things. But the true home I think we're all talking about is in ourselves. But before finding it, we're just so bloody lost. I mean, that is, and I think that's probably an existential human predicament, but I think it can be so grossly amplified by the circumstance. I mean, we are now at a time in history when our culture has grown so uh, far distant from any spiritual basis. Uh, and, and that is exactly what was highlighted in my case. I, I am the son or the prodigy of someone who had achieved the pinnacle of financial success, a, 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 an earnest, hardworking. My father, by the way, didn't um, come into money. He was uh, never finished high school and was the son of a, um, a, a gas station owner. Uh, and so it came from a very humble, modest beginning, but he worked his way up and uh, founded a company and was a broker. and afforded our families all kinds of unimaginable opportunities that I, I still today in raising my own kids think that I will never be able to duplicate. But one thing was definitely missing, which was this uh, internal uh, capacity to uh, stay present uh, and to be curious um, and, to, uh, and to have respect for the unseen world and, and not to marshal all one's forces and energies towards accolades, validation, praise, uh, and wealth accumulation. And I think despite having it all in that way, if you don't have it, uh, even a modicum of something on the inside, I think you can be cast out at sea. And that's what it felt like for me for many, many years. And I don't think our school system helped. I don't think society at large helped. 
And if it weren't for following the hunch and having the moment with the teacher under the Bodhi tree in a spiritual milieu, I wouldn't have found that place inside myself. Now, getting back there is a constant challenge. And, but, but the recognition, I don't think anyone takes away from you once you have a little taste of it. Yeah, absolutely. I love this follow the hunch, by the way, this, uh, the hunch thing. I'm glad you brought it up. And really, everybody, we're all one. We are all one. We have all gone through the exact same things. And that hunch is, is part of our connecting to intuition, right? I think you just, something pops up and you activate it based on an intuition that of going forward you know that there's a propulsion that's beyond your ego and all of your mind and all of that stuff so you grab that hunch and that's what we're both talking about so yeah, yeah and maybe it's too. ancient maybe it's pre preverbal maybe yeah. it's history maybe it's your soul maybe it, whatever word you want to took it but like your intelligence is telling you no you have to go to school and your intuition is like i don't fucking belong here I don't want to end up at the at the as a CEO in some you know corporate factory where we're disenfranchising others. I don't want that. But the but the society at large and your parents are going. No, this is you've got to be a doctor. You've got to be a lawyer. You have to be a performer. You have to make money, and your your gut. And then and then they try to they try to silence your internal intuition. And your intuition is your you know microphone or telephone or or you know your your connection to something much ancient and much larger. Yeah. Yes. Perfectly said. By the way, you, one of the mentors, of one of your mentors, is our fabulous Bob Thurman, the Thurminator. As you, I didn't know that one, but the Thurminator. Thurminator, the one-eyed beast. <laughs> Talk about... <laughs> Okay, I want to hear a lot about how you met up with him and uh, and some of your escapades. With so I did several professor. tours of duties. I didn't do a long one year or more stay. I did several six month stays in India, and I eventually found my way back. Uh, discouraged that I couldn't be a monastic um, because that was the setup of the duality between the spiritual and the uh, and the mundane world. I had gotten a taste of spirituality, hung out with the masters, was. You know, I wanted. I thought home was with the place, essentially. And every time I would come back to the United States, I the as as soon as I landed, I felt even more. Anyone who knows after a spiritual pilgrimage what it's like to return home, yeah. it is an even bitter pill to swallow than before you had left. Yeah. And so, in a dizzying disorientation, I would always try to um, scrape some pennies together to get back to Asia, where they last much longer. And after doing a, you know several strings of that, I finally you know said I can't be a monastic. I can't stay here. I'm going to need to get a degree. I'm going to need to make something. Work. I'm going to have to find a living. I mean, that was one of these. I, I think that is a spiritual awakening kind of moment. It's like I have to reconcile the dualities here. I'm going to have to bring my spiritual inclination into the world, although at the time it wasn't framed as clearly as I could frame it right now. Mm. And in doing that, I would head back to New York City and I found my way to not an ordinary master's degree program. It was a very, it afforded me the opportunity to blend my interests that no conventional master's program would allow. And at NYU, they allowed you to do an independent study. And I was going to then do meditation research, combining Buddhist philosophy with neuroscience. And I 
found a, my first real true mentor, Joe Luizzo at Columbia Presbyterian. He was a psychiatrist that had already himself spent a long time with Bob Thurman, himself straddling traditions, medicine and neuroscience on the one side and Buddhist studies on the other, learning the Tibetan and Sanskrit all the way under Bob. Followed him when he was 18 at Amherst all the way to Columbia in his more, you know, in his 30s. And uh, I, I was apprenticing myself to Joe Luizzo at the time of this independent study at master's degree. And Joe said, well, I'll take care of the neuroscience piece, but why don't you go study with my teacher at Tibet House, Bob Thurman? And I must have been 21 at the time. Oh, really? And I went down to Tibet House, which was in its earlier days. And there I saw the three-headed dragon of uh, Robert Thurman, Sharon Salzberg, and Mark Epstein teach on stage together. You know, they were a three, they were a triumphant and they each brought their own beautiful talents. I mean, Sharon was clear as a whistle and very, very open hearted. And she filled it with lovely, relatable stories. And then Mark was precise and surgical with his language and his intellect. And then there was Bob and Bob was a rock star. I mean, he brought the fucking house down. He got, he was high on mojo. I mean, there were rainbow lights ripping out of every orifice possible. I mean, it was next level shit. And he just blew me away. I had never, ever met anybody like Bob Thurman as immense an intellect as he has, as a vast command of the tradition as he owns he is a force of nature and a commanding presence and a, an ability to tell story in a captivating way and to draw on the deepest tantric sutras or tantras and at the same time just a, a poetic use of language. And I just, I became addicted. <laughs> I became addicted because I, I volunteered myself at Tibet House, clearing away garbage and folding chairs and putting coats up on the rack for years, decades, decades, so that I could sit there and watch Bob Thurman just perform like Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia, something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Channeling, totally channeling. Oh, God. You know what? What a beautiful description. It's exactly the truth. I'll tell you. You know, we've known when we were with Maharaji in India in Kenchi in this ashram, Bob would be going to Almora, which was you had to pass by the ashram. He to this day says, I don't know why I didn't get out of the bus. I yeah. out of my car rather. I don't understand you know, he goes on about it. Uh yeah. Well, but, he was following a different path, you know. Yeah, he found his 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 guru right. elsewhere, yeah, but it's all one guru in a way, yeah, you know. It's it is, like it is, it is. But manifestations. I, but Danny Goldman, oh, he'd go up and say hi or something when he passed through, and oh yeah, Bob is going on his way with Nana and and I, th I think Uma, right? Who must have, yeah, who was like a baby or something at the mm -hmm. time. Anyhow, so it, it's a known for a long time. He is known to us for a long time. Some of us have spent much more time with him, Danny, and and so on, and and le more lately, Krishnas has done a lot of teaching with him, and so that turned him. I'm telling you a bit of a a story of my own story of of Bob Thurman. I think it's worth it. As a result, Bob 
kind of turned into us. Now, he's known Ramdas forever and knew him in Millbrook, right? And that's a whole other dance. Uh, but he hadn't seen him for many years. So last spring, we, I said, Bob, come on, you know, come out and, you know, join us, blah, blah, blah. So he did because he really wanted to hang with Ramdas, who he had not seen in so long. So in the course of uh, the the theme of the retreat was no death, no fear from Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. And uh, so there's Bob. And one day we asked him to... So he, he hung out with Ramdas and I and Krishnas and we did a, a panel thing one day and he did stuff with other people. But then one day he did his own thing. We said, oh, Bob, just go for it. <laughs> I tell you, Krishnas and I and and all of us just get this out of was the a, way well it was this was the look on our face for about an hour and a half what <laughs> <laughs> i mean so uh, i want to i want to just read what it, this course by the way this was turned into a course which is now happening through love serve remember foundation a four-week uh, course uh, on no death no fear but in one session i said so, you know, we go through this stuff around soul and oh, self with Buddhist versus the Hindu, and Ramdas is always like going, hate to mention soul to you, right, Sharon or Jack or whatever. So uh, I said, so now I, you know, and I had read this great thing, uh, one of the uh, translations of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, and I said to him, so there, not to get too complex here, but there is a, a soul, um, like non-defined. That soul changes; it's constant changing. Yeah. So it could yeah. be. Isn't that the same, Bob? You know, I, I kind of. This is his reply. I just. This is for you, okay? I because I, when me. I hit me with uh, the magic, go ahead. Buddha is defined in the Mahayana in Mahayana Buddhism, Buddha as a being who identifies with all life and all things. So when you become a Buddha, you have this apparently, and I only know this by definition, not yet by experience, you suddenly feel you are everybody else. So imagine if you were in this room and you suddenly were seeing what is going on in this room from everybody's perspective simultaneously. It might come to you as a bit of a shock. Yeah. Usually we look out from our own meat puppet. That was Ramdas's word for uh, ego mind. We've enclosed. We we are enclosed with our, within our own meat puppet. Suddenly, you're in everyone's meat puppet, and you see everything from every side. That's what a Buddha is defined as. That's what Vishnu means. All pervading. The word comes from to pervade. So Vishnu is everyone from Vishnu's point of view, which means everyone's point of view, which, of course, is inconceivable to us. It's inconceivable. We think that would be a nightmare. We have everybody's headache. Oy. So you can only do that if you bring bliss to that kind of perception. Mm. Apparently, I'm hoping, put it that way. So please don't worry, Raghu about self versus selflessness. It's just a fork in the road, and it's just part of the pharma, pharmacopoeia 
of Indian generosity to the planet. What? Poetry. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the pharmacopoeia of Indian generosity. Let's just put it there because it's all one. Beautiful. Self. So uh, we love Bob. And uh, Bob's coming out uh, again this spring, actually, to Maui. Of course he is. You guys, you guys throw the biggest party. That's where Bob's going to go. (laughs) You have to come too. I'm Um, waiting for my puny little, my little, my, am I good enough? Am I good enough? uh, (laughs) (laughs) You, oh, guy. Um, Again, so much in the, in this book. Uh, I, I, I'd like actually, there's one it, towards the end of the book. There's one fabulous story I'd love for you to recount, and it's about this experience. It's under a chapter about the union of emptiness and karma, which mm-hmm. is also, uh, yeah, wonderful elucidation. But can you tell that whole story, which really uh, exemplifies? It, and you say this moment illustrates the relationship between emptiness and karma. Okay, and you'll explain that. But with your mother and yourself walking down the street, minding your own business. Okay, so this is a a mundane example. My mom and I are in New York City, and it's a a sunny day, and we're minding our own business, and we're on the sidewalk. And behind us, I hear some jibber-jabber and some, you know, I can't quite make it out what it is, but it seems to be directed at me. And that voice gets a little louder, and and it gets more discreet, or I begin to discern that there's some swearing happening and it sounds probably like uh, uh, something personal happening. And so I turn around and there's, you know, someone coming after my mom and I with, um, and, and, and swearing at me. And uh, at first I have a startled response and I'm a little nervous. And then, uh, you know, my sort of training kicks in in which I'm not going to turn around and hit this guy or whatever, but I'm, but in a way, my training isn't sufficient enough to withstand the blows of my own ego. And I start to feel very, very shamed and, and humiliated because here's somebody who's chastising myself and my mother. And yet I don't have uh, the gumption or the presence to be able to transform this situation appropriately. So I just keep walking. And as I keep walking, he knows he's got me, right? He's got me right where he wants me. I'm trying to ignore him, which means he knows that he's got me. And uh, I don't know if he's going to pull a switchblade or whatever, but uh, it doesn't come to that. Uh, And he goes his own way. Nothing is actually said between us. Um, And I have a moment where he's no longer with us. And I turn to my mom and she looks at my face and she says, what's wrong with you? You know, why are you so upset? Because she could see that I felt enraged and possibly more than that underneath the rage taken advantage of or humiliated, you know, I, I, I sort of old wounds were triggered, let's say. And, and yet the moral of the story is that she's giggling, you know, she's taking a very lighthearted approach and she says, well, what's wrong with you? Don't you, don't you understand why are you taking it so seriously? Don't you, don't you understand this, this guy's mad, crazy. Uh, you know, and, uh, and she, she, you know, she wasn't scared at any moment and she wasn't feeling hostile or taken advantage of or abused. And she was just ready to go have a cup of coffee or whatever. And so I take that point to be an illustration of the union of karma and emptiness. And of course the emptiness is a very loaded word. It can be easily to, you know, misconstrued, but should be, 
should be taken to mean that there are no absolutes, all that what there are are relativities. Relativities. So there are there is no absolute abuser behind me. Because if there were an absolute abuser, then my mom and I would both share our own internal experience, right? We would both feel abused. If there were absolute abusers, we would both feel humiliated and enraged. Uh, so the emptiness part of it is that there's no absolute entity out there in the sense that, and the way that I was perceiving it, but you can't just have an emptiness sitting there in abstraction. You always have to have the karma. And the karmic piece is what's my psychological interpretation being triggered here. And what was happening in my little piece of real estate or what you would call meat puppet. In my own meat puppet, I was feeling enraged as a result of the humiliation I may have endured for decades under my dad's tyrannical authority. And how I couldn't, because of the dependency I had on him, I couldn't rise up and challenge him. And so I felt humiliated and stuck. And so with this person chastising me from behind, my karma is to be beholden to the process I have reinforced over my adult history and to find myself in a predicament where that is being recapitulated. Mm. Whereas my mom's situation, not, not a single, not a single trigger was, was, was uh, not a single point was triggered. And so it's not that my mom is a saint or perfect is in this condition and circumstance, she's clean. You know, there isn't, there isn't an impact. Uh, and so I think that the, the main, the main point is that, uh, you can never get outside the realm of this kind of duality. It's the fact that there is both an emptiness and a form simultaneously. There's both, there's no inherent abuser there, but it's not like you can just see that you have to see what your bullshit is being projected. You know, it's yeah. like the blank screen has to hold the frame from the, the film that's being projected upon it. Yeah. And so the round and the round and the round and the nightmare construction of our projections are the sum total residue of our karmic formations. Um, and we have different, we have a variety of different ones, but <clears throat> once you know it's empty, then you know that the projector is creating it. And then you realize where the work needs to be done. Yeah. It's not right. necessarily that you have to stop all the evil people out there. You have to really take responsibility for how you perceive and feel threatened by them. On the other hand, let's not all say it's just mind ragu. I'm sure your nuance after years of hanging out with the psychonauts has helped you see that sometimes there is something in the reality that needs to be taken care of. It can't just be a, 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 a notion of mind alone, right? So we're really dealing with avoiding two extremes. One is that you concretize every reality, and the other is that you fall into some nihilistic trap that yeah, none of right. it is true, it's all an illusion. Yeah, and that's, of course, when people talk about emptiness, that is one of the first things that anybody who really has a, a better grasp of it says this has nothing to, of course, Bob is so great at this stuff, uh, nothing to do with nihilism, negation, or anything like that. And God, he had, somewhere, he had the most incredible definition of emptiness, uh, which I, it's lost me right now, but it, it basically, he equated it, bliss is part of that yes. state. And uh, but bliss, for, void, bliss void indivisible. Yeah, 
But for for us little guys here that we're just popping along and we have these kinds of experiences, the idea that, uh, and of course this is also part and parcel with dependent origination, another great uh, Buddhist concept, uh, but just just the simplicity of we are projecting everything outward, our whole neurotic habitual patterns, all of it. So there is no reality to that. And at the same time, we can't use that to not be in the moment and do what's necessary, uh, given us being in a human body. So if the guy had come with a switchblade, I'm sure... You would have it just would have been a gut reaction uh, of defense, especially with your mother being there. But you go, but this uh, your whole reaction. I was so. Uh, I mean, we have similar backgrounds. I had the same kind of a father, and uh, close to my mother, and and the whole nine yards. So I was like, yes, indeed, these things are the things that come up when you you know, and then you understand them, and that's that's why. I'm sure you're doing a bang-up job with your patience because this kind of an understanding is tantamount to to more healthful outlook perspective. I, I, I think it, it is a very helpful perspective. I think it needs a lot of nuance and preparation. I don't think just anybody is ready to take responsibility for their mind. And I also don't think everybody can easily uh, hold what Bob Thurman calls the uh, tolerance of cognitive dissonance, which is the resistance to falling into either extreme of reifying one's uh, reality or of reifying one's mind and saying, it's all in my mind, okay? There may be people out there who have actually been abused and to tell them that it's all in your mind would be more than unkind. Yeah. And I don't like to do that. Yeah. So I always try to separate out the fact that there are events and then there are perceptions of events. And those perceptions of the events are your responsibility to clarify. But you are not responsible for the things that happen to you. You are only responsible for how you make sense of them. Yeah. Uh, and I try to hit that middle ground there because I think that karma theory in general can too easily side on uh, victim blaming and victim reinforcing. Yeah. And I think that that then becomes a senseless exercise. Yeah. And so I like to hold out the possibility that things can be open and challenge people to see the openness and take responsibility for their side in order to move them forward in a more optimal direction, yeah. but not, but, but really be reluctant to fall into these either extremes that it's all re- a dangerous world out there, which is not a good space to be in, nor is, well, then it's all in my mind and everything is illusion. So nothing matters. And I think that is, that has a, a deep, deep um consequence that is equally destructive and so i like to i like to um, balance that middle way there in fact that chapter eight in my book the one that follows the 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 vignette that you just uh presented yeah chapter eight or chapter seven is on wisdom okay chapter seven in my book gradual awakening is on wisdom took me six months of studying bob thurman's treatises on emptiness called the central philosophy of tibet and that is a that is a very profound text that even the Dalai Lama discouraged Bob in his youth from uh, translating because really? they call they call it the Iron Bow, 
and that is because it is unbendable in a way. It is, it, it is, it was discouraged. Bob was discouraged, but he's tenacious. He's tenacious. When the Dalai Lama said, please don't do it. It's, 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 un, it's, un, it's, it's impenetrable. Uh, Bob took it about on himself to, to, to translate it and not only translate it to Bert, but, but to bring to bear his poetic creativity, his nuance. And one of the great things that Bob Thurman has, has taught me is that reaching emptiness, reaching the insight of emptiness, which, which has for centuries been the domain of yogis, practitioners and meditators. Bob really teaches that scholars and those with very refined uh, intelligence can also come up against the precipice of visceral understanding of emptiness. Suffice are sufficient enough to really be transformative in their life. And his central philosophy of Tibet is a text that he really tries to allow people to come up with these very complex ideas systematically through rigorous study. So I took six six months to really just really, really refine down a piece of that text in order to write that chapter. Mm, And I just, I I say that, I say that because I I really do think there's an enormous interest in spirituality in our culture at the moment. I think there's a huge burgeoning of interest, but I think young people tend to forget what it takes to really learn things and, and, and lack a little bit the discipline and the commitment and the forbearance and the endurance and the ability to see the long game um, because they are now in a climate of sensationalized promises and quick fixes. And so I, I really, I'm only telling you and, and revealing that to your audience because I do want to remind people, especially perhaps young impressionable people, that real integration takes time and it takes fucking hard work and it takes dedication and commitment. And, and if you really want to train, uh, don't, don't fall prey to the siren songs of commercialism that are going to whisper sweet n- uh, nothings into your ear. Mm, yeah. By the way, uh, we're talking about in this book, one thing that pops out in, t- in terms of hard work uh, is renunciation. And uh, now most people hear about renunciation. It means, okay, no sex, give all your money up and become a pauper, you know, whatever. Head it, back to the ashram. Yeah, exactly. Uh Put on but, a loincloth, shave your hair, few, maybe one mala bead is all you get. That's it. Renunciation is, renunciation is about finding the true purpose of life and not accepting the lies our culture tells us about who we are, why we're here, and what we're here to do. Okay? A good, good line. That's exactly, we were talking about that a little, when you were saying to me, well, can you concretize some of the angst that you had when you were growing up? Okay, you just said it. I knew it was in the book somewhere, and that is the line. I had, uh, you know, underlined it. It's. uh... Yeah, we have to give up our, our, um, our our ideas, our sick ideas about who we are. You know, the, the, the things that we have to give up are not external things. They are beliefs. And they are lifestyle habits that are recapitulating our own worst nightmare scenarios. Uh, so if you call it a stress cycle, you know, what you're renouncing is not the world. What you're renouncing is how your mind recreates your own stress predicaments, stressful predicaments, like the one in the vignette that I presented. 
if I don't get a handle on my unworthiness and my fear in the face of dependency on a aggressive authority figure, then I will jump from relationship to relationship, boss to boss, coach to coach, mentor to mentor, recapitulating that. And in a way, make my world into a very unsafe place. And it doesn't matter if I throw my money away or my clothes away or give up my relationships, that apparatus in my meat sack will find its way in, in reinventing itself in Groundhog Day. Wherever you go. There falls. you are. There you are. It's, and, it's, and, and when Miles talks about this is hard shit, it is hard shit. Now, you'd, you, of course, don't want to take on, that's why Ram Dass and all of his talks over the years has been really great, and, and Jack does some of it now. Now, we're human. It's okay. You're going <laughs> to fuck up. It's okay. Don't beat yourself to death about any of this. Uh, but at the same time, it, there's courage involved. There's diligence involved because you're sick and tired of being this meat puppet. Okay, you yeah. can't handle and that's, and and things start to happen. People yeah. pop up in your life that give you something that you're missing. Uh, a book pops up, uh, a piece of music, uh, a retreat in a Hawaii. retreat in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, <it's a> pop up, <laughs> but. Uh, now, but here's something from uh, Tolku Ergian Rinpoche, who is mm. a, a big favorite. His of son was one of my first teachers, Chokinima Rinpoche. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. He's fantastic. Gave me, he too. was the one that gave me refuge in Bodh Gaya when I was 20. R really? Oh. Mm -hmm. Imagine of a family that the Mingyua Rinpoche, oh, I mean, God. an on and what kind, oh. what kind of family is it? This is a, I call it an awakened dynasty. This is a dynasty. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Anyhow, he said, and this goes towards what we're talking about, uh, it's not a, a bowl of cherries. It is difficult. And renounce, renouncing this, uh, these tremendous habits and these neurotic tendencies and so on. Uh, he says, changing habits is like a straightening out of a tightly rolled scrap of paper. You unfold the paper and straighten it out. But if you let go of it, even briefly, it rolls right back up by itself. Yeah. And, 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 we, and we have to and, be friends with that thing, by the way. That's right. And, but you have to keep at it, too, because if you straighten it out and straighten it out and straighten it out, eventually it will even out. So that's the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I do I want to go back to this yeah. idea. There was one moment there where, um, you know, the idea of renunciation, I mean, one thing that I have learned and I learned early on was I did need to come back to the world. I did need to find a profession. I eventually found a girlfriend and didn't work out and eventually found a wife and had kids. And I'm a person that lives in the world. I still have a job. My job is extremely meaningful. I happen to work with people's minds. <clears throat> but nevertheless, one way to make life incredibly purposeful, no matter what you do, where you are and whom you're with, is to turn life on its head so that your culture and all its priorities are closer to the bottom and your priorities as a soul or as a consciousness managing your conditioning is closer to the top. And that's how you can make life meaningful no matter what circumstance you're in. So if you're not, you know, if you're listening right now and you're not in the best kind of condition, you're in a relationship that doesn't work for you, you're in a job that doesn't serve you, 
and it might take a while to get the courage to leave or, you know, to find something new or, you know, you're not all into spirituality and you didn't get an invitation to the nice retreat in Hawaii. Your culture through a megaphone is telling you who you are and what you're here to do to march to, to, march to their orders of consumerism. And the alternative is not to escape to the ashram. The alternative is to begin diligently and earnestly right now, recognizing how powerful your mind is and how powerful your human uh, embodiment is, and that you have the capability right now to illuminate your work towards illumination, work towards clarity, work towards undermining, interrupting, and ceasing the very fundamental processes that are making you happy. In other words, take back your power from the powers that be. Yeah. And that is a, um, a marshalling rallying cry that I have uh, in every country I've visited as on the book tour really tried to firmly establish in people. I'm not here to champion the Tibetan cause, and I'm, I'm here to remind people of their innate, innate capacity as human beings. So whether I'm in Portugal or Greece or in Costa Rica, where maybe they are more disenfranchised economically than most are in, in the United States, and they feel fewer prospects for them, especially the youth in Portugal and Greece, they don't feel in their lifetime at 20, 25, that they will ever have a crack at the economic system and the American dream or the, the dream of prosperity. I try to remind them that their real place in the world comes when they recognize that they're here to do one thing, which is to awaken. And yes, they do need to feed themselves and put bread on the table and take care of their children. And I'm not saying neglect that. I'm saying you have to find a way, but don't make that your tunnel vision priority because that can be very distressing and agonizing. But if you remember you're a spiritual being for first and foremost, then suddenly the dignity that is within you cannot be taken or given to you. It is innate. You just find it. The dignity isn't given to you by your caste or your birthright or your bank account or your social status. The dignity comes when you recognize awareness and spirituality and awakening doesn't belong to anyone but you. Yeah. And then you start to turn your life on its head so that part of your day is about doing inner work and then trying to sort out how you can best live in the world, but not not feeling all consumed by it, because I think that's part of our story, you and I, Regu, and many others, is that that's all we were born into. Yeah. Yep, yep. I also like to say and remind people, and maybe this is a good way to go out on, on this podcast, there has to be, and Roshi Joan Halifax uh, talks a lot about this, there has to be a healthy, healthy respect for the mystery that we just have no idea, uh, especially in terms of reincarnation, transitioning, birth, death, these kinds of subjects which create so much fear in people. Impermanence, another big, you know, fear maker, that if we have a little bit of healthy relationship with what we don't know, and, you know, Roshi Bernie Glassman was so great, uh, you know, he kept talking about the don't know place, hmm. you know, he was so great. So I think that that kind of uh, making a little bit more friends, and I, I love using that term, um, with that 
part of what life is is very very healthy and can uh can i think go a long way to give us some of the courage that's necessary to to do the kinds of things that you talk about in this book and there's by the way in this book many many different um pithy uh, instructions as well so there's ways that you can use this uh, to uh, to your advantage and of course you have if you want a way through the maze of today's pop spirituality to find the real path to full awakening read this book robert thurman okay there you go it's no better than that thank oh you, boy yeah thank you bob uh, we could go on and you know what i i'd love to go on another time we'll continue this conversation it's been so great to meet you and have you on mind rolling miles appreciate likewise, it Rago, likewise i just i give you give me one minute to plug something for your oh, audience absolutely I, plug I, away i i have gotten into um um uh, a situation here where I just want to uh, offer those people an opportunity that may be interested in my work and the grad taking gradual awakening my book to the next level in March I am um, going to launch a two-year uh, program which is both live in New York City but also online where we will unpack all eight chapters of gradual awakening systematically over the course of two years and I'm going to do that in a way where you can visit an online archive and uh, at your own convenience, follow the guided meditations and the lectures and uh, also have online Zoom conferencing to support your practice. But essentially, I want to take people who are ready after doing a retreat there and doing a retreat here, reading a book here, reading. If you kind of are ready to do a more lengthy, in-depth study of two years, halfway through, halfway between uh, a retreat in Hawaii and a four year, you know, going back to school for four years. Then, uh, then, and if you're interested in Tibetan Buddhism and, and how co contemporary perspectives of neuroscience and psychotherapy might gel with those things, then, yeah. then you can find uh, my webpage at milesneal.com backslash CSP contemplative studies program CSP. Well, We'll have all of that on the show notes on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network, which you, you'll and and the book and a link. And uh, when does this start, Miles? So we're going to uh, start with a weekend workshop uh, the last weekend in March, and oh. the first Wednesday in April is when the class actually starts. But best to find the landing page to get all the information. Yeah. And you'll you'll provide that. Please send I'll, that over, I'll and I'll give it to you. the people who put that together, so you can easily just hit a button. Appreciate that like, opportunity, Raghu. I really oh, no, appreciate absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yes, that's very helpful for me because I'm. Uh, <clears throat> I don't. I, I. I just think it's important for some people to have some of the more mid-range, longer opportunities. There are not that many around. So, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for absolutely. helping me share that. <clears throat> thank you again for being here. Well, Dr. thank you Miles from the top, uh, from the top uh, that we had together, uh, that generation of pioneers. You you're uh, impeccably, uh, you know, uh, kind to to uh, to trailblaze the the path for us. But also, you were, I felt a lot of kinship with you in this podcast too. So I think you know some of the differences can also be dissolved. You know, in a way, like you could be more my like my brother in a way. So yeah, uh, exactly. So exactly. I, I do hope we'll have another time to reconnect, and and I, I really respect all your work and how you open uh, opportunities through this podcast for all your listeners. And I hope that we have done them a, a service, and and I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, everybody, write write to us. 
just reminded me. Come on, send us a comment, do something. Info at BeHereNowNetwork.com or on the on the show notes, but there must be some place <laughs> that we can chat together and you can hear uh, your... Uh, your feelings about this podcast. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. We shall see you next week. <laughs>